I remember it was the year 1993. That was uh, 22 years ago already. And uh, Lisa and I had a chance to be in the Czech Republic with the ministry team. It was actually a hockey ministry team. Uh, Lisa came along. She didn't play hockey. She sang. Uh, but we went to the Czech Republic and we, we did a number of things for 16 days there and we did ministry in these different settings and shared some of our, our testimonies in the gospel story with the teams and these young adults that we were playing against. Had a tremendous experience, but I remember what stood out for me on that trip that was so unique was that really for the first time, uh, at least in that number, I encountered people who had never had heard the name of Jesus and never had heard the gospel story ever in their lives. I remember in talking with our translator, he conveyed the fact that that for many of these young adults, their their uh, grandparents maybe had heard of this story and shared some of the story of the gospel, but because of just the, the darkness that had been over that land for so long and this communism that had taken out any of that form of religion, uh, there was just no sense of the gospel story whatsoever. Very unique kind of time of, of just sharing with those people and just realizing uh, the different ways that people have worldviews than maybe we're used to. The interesting fact, though, is that that is becoming increasingly true in our, our culture as well. Uh, we live in Canada in very much a, a, what you would describe as a post-Christian culture, a context that is not that familiar with the gospel story. And definitely if you go to the place of asking uh, about those who are Christ followers, it's one thing uh, to believe in God and another thing to be a Christ father, follower. I, I have often commented, yeah, okay, those who believe in God, that's one thing. But James says, well, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. So how many of those, how many of your neighbors, how many of your family members, how many of your co-workers would you describe or would articulate themselves as Christ followers who know this story of the gospel, believe this story of the gospel? Not just believe in God in some vague form. And so our culture is changing in terms of the understanding of the Christian faith, the understanding of who Jesus is, the understanding of any sense of God is definitely changing. And maybe some of you here this morning are some of those who are wondering, okay, who is this God? Who is this Jesus? What is this gospel story all about? I'm glad you're here if that's you. But it's been changing in our culture for many years and over a long period of time in many, for many reasons. We know that the world is at our doorstep. We see that in unprecedented ways. And we've heard that from different stories. I know, Lori, you've talked about on the U of S campus. I know there's about 2,500 international students on the U of S campus right here. About 10% of our student population of 20-some thousand students there is international students. People from all kinds of cultures, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of faith understandings, worldviews, and so on. You can't walk the streets of Saskatoon or go into a restaurant or engage with people without seeing people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and faith backgrounds and understandings of the world in terms of how they see it. Just go shop at Superstore and have an international experience in a few moments really quickly. We also have new generations of Canadians who've been here multi-generations, generation after generation. And we see that happening more and more where there are new generations of Canadians who too have never heard the gospel story. No idea, no concept of that gospel story. We live in a time when there seems to be tolerance for all kinds of things except maybe the Christian story. We feel that at different times. And if you're a follower of Christ, maybe you feel that the 
sort of reaction or response that you get is at best indifference and maybe at worst some form or some measure of persecution. But I mean, we're Canadians after all, so even our persecution is nice, right? Kind of subtle and gentle and we apologize afterwards. But the reality is is that our, our country is changing. Our context is changing. Our culture is changing. It's different. It feels different. We know that. You know that. We also know that our church culture is changing. The way people, even who are followers of Christ and, and are engaged in the church, the, the context and the culture of our churches feels different as well too. I know Evangelical Fellowship of Canada who does a lot of research and tracks these things, they, they report that people who are, are avid Christ followers and who are regular church attenders, whereas 10, 15 years ago they would attend on a Sunday morning on average about maybe 60 to 70% of the time. Now currently, that number is very different. It's almost in half. Where somebody who is a regular church attender who really feels that they are a follower of Christ, and yes, this is my church, they might show up on a Sunday morning 30 to 40% of the time. Our church culture is different. Research shows that one in two evangelical kids in the 80s and 90s, Barna Research shows this in the study uh, hemorrhaging faith that talks about this, that one in two evangelical kids in the 80s and 90s have all stopped going to church. 50%-ish. We know that there's a large group of people who have often been referred to as the duns. Those people who still believe in God, still even maybe call themselves a follower of Christ, but are just done with the local church. You know that. You know many of these people. Maybe you're struggling with some of that yourself. They're in your families. They're in our families. We live in an age in a church culture where you can get the best podcasts of the best preaching at any time, 24-7. You can listen to your favorite preacher from around the world at any time. You can go and online and watch a favorite worship service, and if you have a big enough screen, you can feel like you're a part of it and engage in it. It's exactly your heart language. And you don't have to connect in community at all. Our church culture, my point is, is, is changing. It's different. We maybe have a diminishing need or at least a diminishing ability to engage in community. And in some ways, we're more connected as a culture than ever before in so many ways, and yet we still can feel so incredibly alone. So that's just some of the things that represent the changing culture that we live in and the changing church culture that we also live in. But again, you know this. You feel it. You're experiencing it. You're, you're living it. Unless you're so insulated in a bubble of a church Christianese culture that you don't connect outside of that, you, you have a keen sense of some of this already. I don't have to tell you that. But what I want you to know this morning that in all of this, there is incredible hope. In all this, there is an incredible gospel message of hope that changes people, changes cities, changes families, changes our lives. And the answer in all that is not to withdraw in fear and protect ourselves from the outside world, but the answer in all that is to engage in this world with new eyes, with new courage and a deep faith and the call to live like missionaries again. Understanding our culture better, analyzing our culture better, thinking about it more deeply. But you need to know that the good news of Colossians 1.6 is still happening. It says, this same good news, this is Apostle Paul, he's talking about this. He says, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere. 
by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Colossians 1, 6, 6 is still happening. I was just uh, in the last week in different meetings in Winnipeg and in Abbotsford uh, with Mennonite Brethren Missions Organization and in different settings. And one of the things I love about being a part of that is the opportunity to hear stories literally from around the world. Many stories that aren't able to be told in other settings, aren't able to be put on any website, aren't able to be shared in those settings because of the 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 kind of country that the in and the restrictions that are there. But the truth of the transformation that is happening, this story of Colossians 1 6 that is happening literally around the world. So many incredible stories. And if we are willing to engage this world with real faith, we know that the gospel has not changed. Transformation is still happening. Lives are still being changed. But the question remains, is this gospel, first of all, changing us? There's revival that is happening in different settings, like I said, in North Africa, in Algeria, in countries like Egypt. People are coming to faith in so many incredible numbers. Still, it can happen here though. Why can't it happen now here in Canada? What would God God have for us in Canada? What is He calling us to as the church? We're beginning a series here for the next number of weeks called Gospel and Culture and uh, looking at the book of First Peter. And we want to look at this letter that Peter wrote to the churches that were scattered and the churches that were trying to understand how to live out their, their faith in the context that they were in. And Scott McKnight, one of the commentators uh, who writes about this text, he says that this is one of the earliest documents that we have that helps us to understand the complex relationship between church and culture. Even the complex relationship between church and state when it comes to our political empires. And that is First Peter, what we're going to look at. It's written in light of the early Christians' relationship with the Roman government. They were a dispersed group of believers of Jesus, followers of the way, this new movement of Jesus Christ, and now trying to understand how do we live now in this context of a Roman empire and the persecution that is happening all around them. It's a question for all time. How do we live in these contexts? And as we read this text and as we see the themes that will come through in the weeks ahead, we might be tempted to think in kind of a simplistic way and say, well, okay, all it really takes is live holy lives, you know, be good citizens, participate in society in your own way, endure suffering, and don't make any waves. In some ways, there are some of those messages that come through, but it's not that simple. And it's a much deeper, more complex message than that that Peter gives to these believers and and gives to us today as well. The issues were complex then. The issues are complex now. They're just different in many ways. They look different. And different social situations require different strategies for living within any society. We need to live and proclaim an unchanging gospel in continually different ways as we engage the context that God has placed us in. This one as well. And so, when you think of issues in our context here and and just how sort of the Christian faith bumps up against our culture, it happens in lots of different ways, doesn't it? Sometimes it's it's kind of subtle and, and small ways, and sometimes it's a lot bigger ways, a lot more complex. We know that in just a few weeks, we'll start hearing the debate again about, well, is this the upcoming holiday season? Or is it the Christmas season? 
and the raging debate that happens every year as people wrestle with that wording and what is politically correct and so on, right? The issues of euthanasia, doctor-assisted suicide or doctor-assisted death, depending on what terms you use, and they're used in different ways in different settings. Human sexuality, homosexuality, the whole times now of pick your gender, the sex saturation of our culture. Really complex issues. Difficult issues. How do we live in, in faith in these issues? What does that look like? We're going to be talking about these things in the weeks ahead. And uh, we have some strobe lights happening here. That's really fun. That's not distracting. I can even see it. We're going to be talking about those issues, uh, about human sexuality and, and some of the things. The, uh, the Manai Brethren uh, study conference is happening in, in just over a week. And so that study conference is uh, happening in Winnipeg, and there's quite a number of us that are going to that, wrestling with this, these issues of how do we be the church in this, in this culture, in this way. And even uh, three weeks from now, on November 1st, I'm going to be speaking a series. We're going to just sort of take a step aside from the text specifically, because it doesn't come out of this text. But we're going to talk about some of those issues of human sexuality and and what Scripture says to us, and how do we understand these things? And so we'll look at that. And even as we lead up to that, I would encourage you, if you've got if you've got questions, which I'm sure you do, and maybe there are things that you really wrestle with, I'd, I'd love to just have an email from you and say, look, this is the question that's really struggling for me as we talk about this series of gospel and culture, that you would even fire off some emails and some questions and to put those out there that we can talk around in the weeks ahead. Other issues like immigration, multiculturalism, pluralism, the loss of absolute truth. Again, this increasing intolerance for the Christian faith. I mean, take your pick. There's all kinds of complex issues that we face today. So this letter is Peter's attempt to make sense of the reader's social situation, again, in the context of the Roman Empire, in light of their newfound identity in the family of God. How are they to live? How are we to live in our culture? And today we want to look at this message of hope. And this word hope that is up here. And we're going to look at different words that will sort of be our theme, our summary of the text each week. And, and this week we want to look at this whole idea of hope that is found in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. So it starts off this way, and I encourage you to turn there. 1 Peter is right at the back of your Bible, almost at the very end. And uh, go back a few, and you'll find it there. And it says this, this letter is from Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. I want to just stop for a minute and ask an initial question as we look at this. He identifies himself as the writer here. Peter does. We have to ask ourselves the question of, well, who is Peter? Who was Peter? Well, if you remember, he was one of the original apostles. He was one of those who walked with Jesus. He was one of those chosen by Jesus to follow him. And he says, come, I want to make you fishers of men. And so he walked and lived and, and breathed and ate with Jesus. He was there in his presence. He was there as part of the inner circle in his ministry. But if you also remember the story of Peter, remember that, that he was one who struggled with what Jesus said was coming and struggled, struggled with some of the challenges that Jesus predicted were coming ahead. When Jesus started to prepare his disciples for that time when he would go to Jerusalem and he would be uh, persecuted 
even to the point of death, hung on a cross and put in a tomb and raised again on the third day. Peter was the one who said, no, 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 that, that's not going to happen. There's no way. We're not going to allow that to happen. Remember that? And Jesus was the one who said, get behind me, Satan. Peter. Because he says, your ways are not God's ways. And he says, anyone who wants to follow me has to lay down their lives, pick up their cross, and follow me. This was also the Peter who at the very end in those last moments when that event was actually happening, that he denied Jesus just as Jesus said he would. And so this person who had walked with Jesus intimately and who said, no, 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 I will stay with you and I will even die with you right to the very end, when it actually came to crunch time, he was the one who bailed. And three times, three times he denied who Jesus was as he was confronted with this truth. But now in this letter, we see a very different Peter who saw the resurrected Jesus, who interacted with them, who has received this Holy Spirit of God within him, and now he sees the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as absolutely central to his faith. And it comes through in this book, in this letter, over and over again. He was this witness who saw him. Peter experienced so much. So he's writing to God's people, to God's elect, chosen, grace-filled people scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Scattered partly because of the persecution that was happening to them. Scott McKnight, again, he, he talks about the fact that he has become convinced that the audience that Peter was writing to was largely a Gentile audience. Familiar with the Jewish customs and familiar with the Jewish culture and connected to the synagogues, but they had been grafted in. These people had been grafted into this faith in Jesus Christ and of God's chosen people. They're called exiles, foreigners, sojourners. They are people without a home. People residing in a place with virtually no rights. They had no real home other than the family of God that was now their new home. And that was to be their place of belonging and hope, which is what Peter is pointing them to. You know, history shows us that when people are scattered, and if you look back over history at different things that happened in different contexts, in different countries, when people are scattered and dispersed, amazing things happen. It's unreal how God can use that for His bigger purposes. And even just uh, being in some of the meetings I was at and hearing some of the reports, again, the things that we're seeing on the news right now about the Syrian refugees that are scattered throughout Europe, what an unbelievable time of opportunity that God is using to bring His gospel message to these people who would otherwise be in a country in a place where they could never actually hear this gospel message, a very closed country. But now all these moderate Muslim people who are scattered on the borders of Turkey, who are scattered throughout a place like Germany, where there are tens of thousands of people who are hungry not only for food and clothing and shelter, but even when those physical needs are taken care of, that they are so hungry for a gospel message of hope coming to faith over and over and over again. One day, maybe being sent back to their country, but now as believers in Jesus Christ. It's unreal what God does when God scatters people. It's an amazing story. And so Peter here is talking to a scattered people. He's talking to people who are spread out along the, all over this Roman Empire region, and he's giving them words of encouragement, different words of encouragement of how to live in faith. So then he comes to this text in, in verse 3 to 12. And I'm going to read this, and I know that, that sometimes people say that I, I speak fast, and I know that I do. Um, but bear with me, because I'm going to read this text how I think maybe Peter wrote it. 
Scholars actually, when they look at the grammar in this text, they say that there's actually no commas or periods or anything. It's just like one big massive run-on sentence. Okay, hardly taking time to breathe. I'll breathe. But but that's how Peter's writing this. And now think again of who he was. Think again of what he has walked through with Jesus in terms of saying, no, 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 you're not going to die on the cross. No, 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 I don't know this man. Okay, so this is that Peter who now has understood truly who Jesus is, believes in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, has put his faith in him, has witnessed this, and is giving testimony to this, all that he has seen. And he writes this amazing story of hope. This amazing record of what salvation is all about. And here's what he says, verse 3 to 12. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Another translation says, We live with this living hope. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad because there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong, through the many trials, I will bring, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love Him even though you've never seen Him. Though you do not see Him now, you trust Him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting Him will be the salvation of your soul. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about his, this grace, gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when He told them in advance about Christ's suffering and His great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Do I hear an amen? Amen. I mean, that's... Peter speaking with passion. I mean, he's just declaring this truth. It's almost like he's spitting like I was and drooling and talking and and trying to get this out so quickly and saying, this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is where your hope is found. Do you get it? People, you're going through some hard times. You're going through a difficult uh, era in, in history. You're living in a hard place, but you got to understand that there is something beyond today. You can understand there is something beyond what you're experiencing right now. He says, you got a living hope. This is your home. This is your place of refuge. This is where you put your trust. This is what you anchor your life to. So when you feel like you're living as sojourners, when you feel like you don't really belong, where you feel like you're always longing for more, where you feel like, you know, you feel like a foreigner, an exile, you don't really fit in, he says you're normal. It's part of the gospel because you weren't made for this place. You were made for another place in glory one day. And he says that longing that is there within you is part of what God has given you in this hope for something more. Because your identity is not found in the culture that you live, whether you're Canadian or Syrian or African or whatever else you are. Like You are a child of the King. And you need to hear this truth and this hope. You know, Peter in this message, he talks about this gift of salvation and he, 
He talks about it in the sense of it being both past, or it's past, present, and future. That it's all of those combined and all of those come out in this text. That something has happened in terms of what Jesus has done. Something is happening now in terms of what this salvation is doing in you right at this moment. And it's also something that is still to happen. Either when you die or when Jesus returns in glory one day, there is a future hope. You know, people look to salvation or rescue or anchor points in all kinds of different places. We know that. We subtly do that, if we're honest, at different times. Now the federal election is in front of us and it's coming quickly, finally. Are you weary too? But some people put their hope in political ideologies. You know, if we just get the right prime minister, if we just get the right government in place, I mean, then now we will have the solutions, right? It's important, but it's not ultimate. We need to vote. We need to be engaged. We need to be involved. We need to be good citizens. We will see that throughout First Peter. But our hope is not satisfied there. It will always leave us wanting in some way. So Peter, he clearly sets his hope and the hope of the readers and the hope of us, our hope, is set in the reality of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says again, and that's how he starts out this book, you want to know how to live in this culture? You have to start here. Do you understand where your salvation, hope, is found? He says we live with great expectation. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior who has overcome the world. So when you think of the word hope, what comes to mind? What comes to mind for you when, when you think of, of that word? I think of lots of different things. I think of the town of hope, Hope DC, partly because it was a place that was the gateway to Camp Squia, which is a place of significant faith formation for you, for me. A place where Sylvester Stallone filmed the movie First Blood. Some of you know that one. Um, Hope is the place where, for those who live in the Lower Mainland, we did for 15 years, lots of people, they don't think that there's any life beyond hope. The world just sort of ends there at the end of that valley, you know. So hope has many implications for you. I hope you have some different uh, ideas or things that, that come to mind than those kinds of things. But how important is hope? Again, I think you know that it's it's critically important. I've talked to many people who've experienced various degrees of hopelessness. And some who have said that when you come to that place of hopelessness, it is a very scary, dark, and lonely existence. And so we know how significant and important hope is. We talked a lot about this last spring when we did the sermon series on Philippians of unusual joy. And we talked about mental health issues, and the challenges of that. But hope is a combination of two things. Hope is a desire for something more, but it's also the expectation of actually receiving it. So hope, on one hand, is first of all desiring something more. There's a longing. There's there's something that you long for. There's this desire there. But coupled with that, what's necessary and needed is also some expectation, some reasonable expectation that that actually can be achieved. Because if you don't have that, then you despair. And so there's two parts to that definition of of having that expectation, but also a reasonable uh, expectation that it can be fulfilled in some way. There's encouragement in that. 
You long for more? If you do, that's part of hope. It's part of what God plants within you. But then the question is, is where do you go? Where do you look for that fulfillment of that? Where do you look for what might uh, fulfill that expectation that you have? But then we see that Peter adds the suffering part. Verse 6. He says, so be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Oh yeah, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. We know that if you live any time in life, you go through some trial. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what culture you're a part of. You're going to endure some things that are difficult and hard and painful. And Peter is saying this to a suffering church. This is a church that was being persecuted very overtly in all kinds of challenging ways. And he says, this incredible hope of final salvation is what gives you capacity to endure this momentary suffering. And you know, we might live in a post-Christian culture in many ways, but we really don't know the suffering that happens for so many people around the world who live a life of faith. Maybe you've seen there's websites and some funny videos that you see once in a while that talk about first world problems, right? Yeah, we face some of those things. They're more inconveniences. I have to wait in line for a table at a restaurant. Are you kidding me? You know, I can't get my iPhone 6 in my skinny jeans. It just doesn't fit. Like, what do I do? And there is not enough foam on my latte. Could you take this back and make it again? I say that for all the baristas who put up with that all the time. Right? These aren't real challenges. I was just on Monday night with a man who lost two of his best friends who were murdered because of their faith, who had their throats slit while he was in trial at the same time for the very same crime, being a Christian. On Sunday, I met a woman last week in Abbotsford who had lost her whole family when she chose to follow Jesus. In the sense that they abandoned her, they rejected her, they basically said, you do not exist anymore. So for her and her daughter, it was a very, in many ways, lonely experience. But now her identity is found in the family of God. And she's praising God because of this hope that is found in Jesus. We don't typically encounter this. Although I would say that it's happening in greater measure even today than you might think. I know that some of our youth and young adults who are part of our church have experienced a measure of this in our culture as well too. Rejection from family, obstacles, challenges, lack of support, or worse. Where the primary support group becomes the church, just like Peter is saying here. Sometimes I wonder if that's maybe a bit of why our young adult generation feels the value of church membership and making that mean something almost more significantly than their parents do. Because they say, this is our place of belonging. This is our spiritual community. This is our home. And so it has to mean something. We have to truly learn to be the church in that way. I think it requires a a deep understanding of salvation in order to endure suffering, which is what Peter is saying here. In fact, I think suffering follows somebody truly living out their salvation. And I think it's a fair question to ask whether our lack of suffering is due to a weak faith or a weak theology of salvation. Or maybe just just a lack of nerve of living boldly in our culture with a strong message of the cross. 
So Peter is saying and challenging them in this context and saying there is absolute truth. There is things that are true and things that are not true. It's found in Jesus Christ. There are eternal consequences to this. There is a heaven and hell. We need to pay attention to these things. So, you know, I as I think about the increasing alienation and maybe animosity and even maybe some persecution that happens in our Canadian context for somebody who is a follower of Christ, I think there are many areas of our lives that it can happen, but I don't think that there's any place that's more challenging to live out your faith as a believer than on the university campus. These are some of the greatest places of challenge and persecution and intolerance when it comes to things of the Christian faith. The great irony of that, of course, is that many North American colleges and universities started actually as a training center for clergy going into ministry. And now they've become the place where it's more about political correctness and a lack of tolerance in certain areas and so on. And debating things and bringing a Christian perspective becomes really, really challenging. So how do Christian students live out their faith in that context? I think First Peter will help us in that as we go through these weeks. And he calls this church and these people to continue to live a loving and holy lifestyle, but to find their identity in the family of God, not in a society that does not accept them. So how do we all live in our culture? Do we just withdraw and try to kind of box everything off to protect us and to protect our children? Or do we have loud protests and just sort of shout louder than everybody else to try to get a message across? I think we need to ask God for a new boldness to proclaim His truth in unwavering ways to a society that is crippled with options, but to do so with uncompromising love for people. To understand our culture, to understand the Gospel so well that we can contextualize the Gospel, not change the message, but to change the ways that we convey it. To remove all the cultural obstacles that the only offense that is left is the offense of the Gospel itself. So how do we live with that kind of truth in love? What does that look like? How do we do that on a case-by-case basis? It starts with an unwavering hope of this past and present and future hope in Jesus. I want to invite the worship team if they would come up and lead us in response to this truth that Peter is talking about here in this text. And I want you to know that maybe as you walk out today, Maybe the only thing that you're thinking about is actually the lunch that you're going to eat. And that's okay. But the reality is is that we don't know what will happen to us this afternoon, do we? We might get some news that might be the most incredible news of celebration that we will be rejoicing for weeks and celebrating with those around us. But we might also get some news that might be so devastating and hard that it will, it will buckle our knees. It will rock our world. But here's the thing, you need to know that either way, there is an opportunity to hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that will not perish, spoil, or fade because of what Christ has done. And my prayer is that you would know that kind of tenacious living hope today. Would you stand with me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for these words of joy and hope and celebration that Peter writes in this incredible letter to these believers who are scattered throughout a very difficult region. And Lord, I pray for each one of us here today that if we feel that we are in a context that is difficult and challenging and hard, where it's so hard to live out our faith, 
God, that you would strengthen and encourage our faith in you. And Lord, that we would not put our hope in worldly things and in worldly ideologies, but that we would put our hope in this gospel message that changes everything. And God, I thank you for the truth that this same message, this same gospel is transforming lives around the world. But then it also says, just like it changed our lives, that first time we heard about this marvelous grace. And so Lord, I pray that each one here would hear and know and embrace and believe and walk in that incredible grace of Jesus Christ. And that we would live out this hope. That we would live in that kind of confidence with unwavering trust in You and with uncompromising love for those around us. Lord, would You just help us to walk in that, we pray. And would You just open our eyes to help us to see what You want us to see today and this week and in the weeks ahead about Your truth and about this hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.